All right. I am live with Stefan Bertram Lee. How are you doing today? I'm good. Good. So uh, this is our first time uh, talking uh, vocally. I've, uh, I've talked to you a little bit online. <laughs> Uh, but I have been uh, I have been familiar with you for for a little while now because I remember when it first came out, um, you know, reading in Jacobin in 2019. There was a profile of you by uh, Connor Kilpatrick called yeah. the, on- "The Online Left Goes to War." It seemed to be a major motion picture. Outstanding, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so for people, uh, for people who aren't familiar with, uh, with this part of your life, uh, you know, it's, it's not the main thing I want to talk about today, but, but can you give us a couple minutes about what that major motion picture is going to be about? Uh, yeah. So in 2017, um, I always just say I traveled to Syria, but obviously just the traveling to Syria part's very difficult, but yeah, in 2017, I, I traveled to Syria. Uh, with deep kind of implications of how difficult that is um, to join the YPG um, or People's Protection Forces, which was which is uh, kind of the main military force um, of the autonomous administration of northeast Syria, which is um, in the midst of the Syrian civil war, um, an area controlled by a left wing uh, feminist revolutionary organization uh, which kind of came out of the Kurdish liberation movement but has taken pains to kind of become a more general force above any kind of um, narrow national uh, aspirations and this kind of um, rejection of, of narrow national aspirations is one of the reasons uh, that they were motivated to recruit uh, people like me yeah, so I, I do want to um, underline and circle this, you know, because um, most people who, you know, who you might, uh, you know, might interact with uh, on online, you know, their political activity primarily consists of talking shit on Twitter. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, I... Uh, you know, I do a little bit more than that, but I, uh, I certainly haven't gone off to be an international volunteer in any, um, uh, in any revolutionary leftist militias to, uh, to, to, you know, to, uh, fight with ISIS, uh, in, uh, in Syria. Uh, so, so that's, uh, that's pretty interesting. Um, and you said, you, know, you said fight with ISIS there, which threw me off for a second, but obviously in, in English, the term's ambiguous. And yeah. there's also the, the oh yeah, fight fight against, fight against ISIS. Uh, yeah, the, the, the world's fight. also ambiguous in in Russian. Um, so there was like a lot a, a big meme going around the Russian speaking world when the war started, of like Yuri Yuri Gagarin returning to Earth and and asking kind of his his grandchildren what's happened. Uh-huh. And, he said, <laughs> and the the meme goes like, the the young person says to Yuri like, oh, we're fighting with the Ukrainians, and he's like, fighting with the Ukrainians against who? <laughs> and you're like, oh fuck! What's happened? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I do want to. Uh, I do want to get to uh, to Ukraine because um, this is uh, this is something that I know you have stuff to say about, and 
also there is you know a little bit of an interest in uh point of uh, of connection here since um you know just just like you and and other you know british and american volunteers you know went to um fight uh with not against the uh, ypg and uh uh in syria um there there are people who are international uh international volunteers you know like americans who uh who go to uh who've gone to I mean, fight I, I don't know if it was big news in the us but a couple of days ago um two british men uh who were former yepige fighters were sentenced sentenced to death in um separatist held uh, Ukraine in the in the Donetsk People's Republic, and one of them, Aiden, uh, was a good friend of mine. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so I think you, um, you know, so I think probably out of anybody who who hasn't done that, right? You know, you you might have the uh, the most insight into you know into what that would be like for people who who are, uh, who are going over there. Uh, but I also know that probably, you know, some of your view of the, the conflict in Ukraine is, is pretty different. I would imagine from, uh, from that of, uh, of a lot of people who, uh, who have gone over to, uh, to fight there. Um, and, you know, and, and when, um, you know, I mean, when I was, uh, in fact, you know, in the minutes after I posted this on Twitter, uh, we uh, we got a pretty uncharitable characterization in the uh, in the replies uh, of those views, but I want to let you speak for yourself. So, uh, so so what's your what is your general perception of both uh, the war itself and how it's been perceived in the West? Uh, do you mean in terms of kind of what's happening or kind of uh, what should happen? Are we, are we being normative here? Uh, let's start descriptive and then go normative. Descriptively, what do you think people are getting wrong? Um, well, at the moment, it's kind of this thing of uh, propaganda and news, which, you know, really, like, it's kind of it became brutally obvious how little difference there is between the two. Um, don't really keep up, you know? It's, it's hard. It, it, you can force people to believe something by just saying it to them over and over again. Um, mm-hmm. but it's quite hard to get people to then transition to believing to something else. Um, so we were for a while after kind of the Russians' disastrous efforts to take over the whole country. I mean, the right. Russians started the war basically treating it like a, uh, like a police operation. Mm-hmm. When they went into Crimea in 2014, 87% of the military forces there defected to Russia and the remaining 13% uh, didn't fight. Um, the, the kind of, the police forces in Crimea, like the people who work for the police in Crimea, are basically the same people who worked for the police when Crimea was part of, of Ukraine. Right. Um, I think Russia imagined they would have a lot greater troubles uh, in Ukraine than that, but they expected generally something vaguely along those lines to happen. And you can see it in terms of the Russian propaganda where they talk about uh, they're still. I, I read Russian tabloids, and they're still saying they don't. They don't say like we eliminated 500 Ukrainian army soldiers today. They say mm-hmm. we eliminated 500 nationalists. Where what? basically the Russians imagined that they would go in, the Ukrainians wouldn't really be up for it, 
the Ukrainian army wouldn't really be up for it. Um, they'd be able to take Kiev relatively quickly. And then kind of the only people that's still fighting would be these would be like remnant military units and kind of the large network of uh, like fascist military units uh, mm-hmm. in Ukraine. But this obviously hasn't happened. Uh, as I say, 87 percent of uh, Ukrainian soldiers uh, defected in 2014 in, in Crimea. And so far, I think the number is uh, zero in this war. Uh, right. So Russia kind of went in on a very delusional premise. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the uh, it's the neocon thing from 2003. We'll be welcomed as liberators. Yeah, I mean, I do read the kind of Russian tabloids a lot, and often they still ask the question when they're interviewing people, like, why weren't we greeted with, um, you know, flowers and so on? But since then, kind of Russia has recalibrated. Uh, they've withdrawn from the north of the country, um, and they've moved in to slowly, gradually take over um, the Donbass and this kind of south of Ukraine. I mean, it's hard to talk about this stuff because some people want to say as if they're taking over, like, the Russian-speaking part of Ukraine. But kind yeah. of, it's, it's like, I mean, basically everyone in Ukraine writes in Russian. Um, and... You know, like Zelensky, he's a, he's, he's a Russian speaker. Um, he, he's an actor who acted all of his life. He acted in Russian. Um, so it's kind of, if, <laughs> you know, if, if, you know, if Russia's taking over the Russian speaking part of Ukraine, they should be taking over the president's office too, you know? Right. Um, but there, so there is, about, you know, but there is like a, uh, some sort of, uh, even if, if Russian speaking is a is an imprecise way to, way to put it, right? I mean, there is, um, you know, my understanding at least. You can correct me. Is is there is like a pretty considerable split in sort of I don't know cultural identification or something, you know, between um, you know, I mean, like there's a reason why in in Crimea, you know, that uh, that there's there's no like uh, anti-Russian, you know, insurgency that's happened, you know, in the, in the last several years, or even in, you know, I know the Donbass is a, is a much bigger place than like what was being held by those so-called people's republics. But, you know, that, you know, the same thing, you know, true to, you know, to, to a certain, you know, to a certain extent, uh, to a certain extent there, right. I mean, like that it is, so, I mean, I, I, I do want to dwell on that point just for, just for a yeah, minute. I think the thing to emphasize is that there's no clear distinction of where it begins and ends, and it's all kind of a continuum. It's not that, you know, 100% of people in this region think of themselves this way, and 100% in another region think of themselves another way. And you'll, like, um, you'll hear about, you know, you, there'll, there'll be, like, a conversation. And I read in these Russian tabloids, like, there was a conversation between this... Uh, prisoner who was a member of the Azov battalion and he was he was from Mariupol I think uh, yeah. while the the guy from the Dontex People's Republic who was talking to him was from further west and he'd come well he hadn't been home in, in eight years but he'd come from the further further west of, of Ukraine when the Russian spring started so I think it's obviously it's kind of like I guess to reject both the idea that we should reject the idea that kind of Ukraine was just waiting for the Russians. And the only reason that, you know, it's only because of like fascist 
uh, right. Italians or whatever that's stopping them from going in. But we should also reject the idea that kind of even if you cut places, even if you like chopped Ukraine in certain ways, you can't then get like a half of Ukraine, which is perfectly Ukrainian speaking and perfectly anti-Russian and so on and so on, you know? Yeah, right. Uh, and, and I guess I should also say my, you know, impression from what I've seen is that um, there's also, you know, okay, so there's this continuity in terms of, um, you know, primary language, uh you know, cultural identification, political sympathy, not that all those things have to go together all the time. They clearly don't. But um, that there's also, you know, because, um, you know, because what the Russians have been doing in the last few months is so extreme, you know, that I mean, like there there are places even in, you know, like uh, even in terms of the, the fighting in, you know, in eastern Ukraine that, you know, where they've kind of limited their ambitions to you know there are places where probably there are more people who would have been vaguely pro-russian you know if not for this but like you know don't particularly enjoy being bombed and shot at and you know that makes them much less pro-russian yeah i mean i i mean it's obviously i mean this is something i've become kind of more that's what i thought at the start of the war but something i've become more kind of suspicious of recently and it obviously i think it just kind of the reality is that Rather than, you know, <laughs> we're not Duganists and we're not fascists. So we don't think that kind of anyone is born a Russian or Ukrainian, right? Sure. Um, and so the, the people, like, for instance, yeah, obviously kind of everything getting blown up is a problem. And you when you read these Russian tabloids, the main concern that people say to these journalists in uh, kind of occupied Ukraine is when's the gas coming back, when's the water coming back and so on. Um, but, you know, Russia's started to pay pensions in these areas now. I don't think they're higher than Ukrainian pensions. Um, they've started to give out Russian passports and, and do all these kinds of things. And obviously this is kind of like, this is kind of a deliberate uh, policy sure. of Russification. But the thing, you know, all these things like, for instance, would uh, Kherson have voted to join Ukraine, uh, to join Russia in 2014. I don't think so. Though it would have been like maybe 70, 30 or something like this. Mm-hmm. Would, would Kirsten have voted to join Russia like on February 23rd? Definitely not. Like 10% or less uh, would have voted in favor. Will Kirsten, if, if, I mean, there's not going to be a fair referendum, but if there was a fair referendum, say next year in Kirsten or the year after, would people vote to join the Russian Federation then? after they've been already integrated within Russia, being paid the Russian pensions, given Russian passports and all this kind of thing. Yeah, like, why not, you know? Interesting. Uh, Okay, so you did say, you know, so let's let's talk about, you know, I mean, you you mentioned fascists just now, so um, so let's let's talk about fascists. They, um, you know, the because I know you've written about this uh, for um, for Sublation Magazine, where I should say you're also a contributing editor. Uh, so what's the... Um, uh, I mean, I guess maybe, like, you know, staying, um, you know, I mean, staying descriptive for, for just another minute, like, is, is it the case that... Um, 
that your perception is that how much of a problem um, Ukrainian fascism is, um, it, you know, the far right elements within Ukraine are, has been underplayed in the West as a kind of overreaction to Putin making these insane claims that like, you know, his motivation for trying to invade the entire country is to, uh, uh, is is to denazify it because he's just so morally offended by you know the existence of far right forces. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a country in the world which has as close to kind of as many fascists in positions that matter with weapons organized into units which are kind of under their own control. Um, and obviously, the the kind of before, I mean, the thing is, I it's, it's kind of incredible that kind of. Uh, there's been like a massive propaganda war. I don't, I've been, one of the, I like to follow Wikipedia, not to kind of find out what the true facts about the world are, but to find out what kind of is the general accepted view of things in the West. I'm Mm -hmm. getting an echo. Is that something I've done? Oh, yeah, sorry. So you're, Um, yeah, I've been following uh, Wikipedia in this way. And the Azov Battalion was obviously before the war, they were just listed as, an, as a neo-Nazi unit. Um, and then for months and months, people were fighting the talk page to try and get the neo-Nazi descriptor removed. But I was really surprised by how long Wikipedia uh, resisted this kind of official narrative. But finally, a couple of weeks ago, they have get, gotten rid of the neo-Nazi descriptor and the, the far-right description or anything like that. And they're just kind of... Uh, they're meant to be a, a normal union, a unit of the uh, kind of National Guard, which has a fascist past or whatever. Um, but since, so there was the Azov Battalion, but also there was, for instance, the Carpathian Sitch, which were kind of the unarmed battalion associated with Soboda, um, the one Ukrainian fascist party which had some electoral success. And there was the kind of large Ukrainian volunteer army uh, associated with right sector. Um, so these were kind of, you know, quite large groups. Um, I mean, it's, 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 you know, one Nazi unit in your military is, is far one too many, but obviously kind of, well, I don't know, obviously, but things have got a lot worse basically, um, since the war started. So, and one thing is, so obviously I don't think I really, I know I did mention this in the article, but the original Aswell Battalion has been destroyed in Mariupol, right? Um, but this contrary kind of Russian aims, this has not just led to the formation of a lot more Azov units. Another one was just made uh, last week, which I think puts them up to 10 units uh, of kind of battalion. So this must, you know, it's, we're getting almost into five figures of the number of uh, military uh, men that um, a neo-Nazi movement has under arms in Ukraine. Um but the kind of the real proper anti-Semite neo-Nazi leader of Azov, who was purged from the military unit in 2016 or something like this, he's now in charge uh, because the kind of the allegedly depoliticized officer corps of Azov have all been killed or captured in Mariupol. And so the real, the real, real, real hard Nazis are back in charge and much more powerful than, than they were before February 24th. Yeah. All right. So that's, so that's interesting. Um, 
And I mean, this is something that I've I've seen. You know, I mean, is is brought up as a you know concern. I mean, maybe we can you know start to shift a little bit into the normative here about um, you know the United States and you know other countries. Certainly, Britain. Uh, Britain recently said they were going to uh, to send Ukraine um, longer range missiles than the United States was uh, you know was willing to uh, to do. And also, you know, it's also worth noting uh, while we're talking about Britain that a that um, you know Boris Johnson apparently has uh, admitted to having you know at, at one crucial point early on shown up in Ukraine to discourage peace negotiations. Right. Uh, so, um, you know that one, you know, there are a lot of ways you could criticize this this policy, which you know, I mean, as I would see it, is that um there has been lots and lots and lots of um of weapons uh sent to uh to to Ukraine heavy 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 military aid and um aggressive lack of interest uh in uh um on the part of the United States and you know the UK and other western powers uh but you know those are the two most important ones in um in peace negotiations uh with uh, with with you know with Russia and you could you could criticize this for lots of reasons. I mean, one of them is that it's uh, you know I mean it's a massive bonanza to the military industrial complex, and another one is that you know World War Three would be really bad, and so you know uh, you know going <laughs> many are saying. yes, many are saying right you know that uh, that that global thermonuclear annihilation uh, would be unpleasant and is best avoided. Uh, but another one uh, that um, you know. Another one, you know, like bring it back to what we're talking about is a question about, you know, where some of these weapons end up. I mean, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar raised this concern early on, you know, the, the idea of, of American weapons ending up in the hands of, uh, of you know, far right forces like Azov. Um, and, uh, and, you know, you could and you could be worried about that for any number of reasons, uh, ranging from um, the the idea of uh, of Nazis, um, you know, having you know having weapons that could then be used outside of Ukraine or you know put on the international black market to um, to the you know the impact within Ukraine itself, right? You know that the these these forces aren't going away, and and you know as you kind of outlined, might become much more powerful, you know. After whenever the war does end, was it a question there? Uh, yeah, I was. Uh, you know the. So I mean, you could speak to any part of that you want, but I mean, like I was, I was hoping that you know, could like get your perspective on this, like the the extent to which that last kind of concern uh, about weapons in the hands of the Ukrainian far right, you know, is. Um, you know, is driving concerns that you might have about, you know, U.S. and British policy? Yeah, I mean, the thing is kind of with Azov and with these other units, whatever stuff Ukraine ended up getting, uh, they were all gonna, always going to get first cut, first dibs. So, but also kind of the structure of Azov, I don't know, I, I'm for me, that's kind of less, I don't know. I'm not that worried about that, to be honest. The kind of the the issue of, okay. kind of direct, yep. in terms of direct weapons, because it's not 
the thing is, it's not that there's Azov and the Ukrainian military, you know. It, it, it is true that Azov are part of the Ukrainian military while being in kind of various ways independent and under their own structures. Um, so, like, when it's not like, you know, it's not like Ukraine is going to get these HIMARS, um, these long range uh, multi launch rocket systems from the US, and, you know, Azov are going to steal them and point to them at Romania or whatever. For the mm -hmm. moment, Ukraine is kind of under, it still is under this kind of stricture of national unity, uh, where these Nazis and their Jewish president are all pointed in the same direction. Um, so I think in the short term, Azov aren't going to do anything different to the, with these weapons um, than they than the Ukrainian military wants them to, you know? Um, like, for instance, um, while they're in this absolutely desperate struggle, the Ukrainian military is still finding time and weapons uh, and missiles to launch almost daily strikes into uh, civilian neighborhoods in, in rebel-held Donetsk. And that's that's not Azov, that's just the Ukrainian military. So on kind of like what they'll do with them in this current war, um, I can't say I'm, I'm particularly concerned about uh, what Azov are going to do with uh, the weapons. Are you are you concerned about what they'll do with the weapons after the end of the current war? Um, yes, I guess. I mean, just in terms of kind of, but no, it's like it's not like if I don't know. It's like what would happen if the UK and US stopped their weapon shipments today? Mm -hmm. I guess the war would end. I, I don't know. That's the thing. I really don't know what would happen. And that's kind of, and there's two things which are really struggling, which was a real struggle for me to formulate kind of a normative response to this. One is in terms of, it's hard to see, for me to see what will kind of happen, especially after the war. And the other mm -hmm. one is kind of, it's hard for me to see that any good outcome, because I, I play out all the outcomes in my head and they all seem really bad. Uh -huh. Like, you know, I, I don't want, like, if you if Russia somehow managed to pull a complete victory out of the hat, this would be bad. But at the same time, I don't want uh, the Ukrainian military, including Azov and so on, to go into territory that was held by the rebels before February 24th. Um, because... I, I don't imagine there'll be any kinder to the people up close than than the ones that, that than to the people that they've been bombard, bombarding for eight years and managing to keep up this bombardment during the war. Um, but then, what 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 is the good option? A, a kind of a bloody stalemate. And you also think about what both sides view as their minimum conditions, and they're just so so far apart. So I think that the real trouble for me to, in producing any kind of good normative outcome is everything just seems really bad. Yeah, I, I can certainly understand that. Uh, I, I wonder if you think that, you know, that would change if, um, you know, I mean, if the United States, especially, you know, as the, as the major backer of Ukraine um, was, was willing to directly engage in, um, 
um, you know, in, in peace negotiations, you know, like, so. Yeah, I, think, I think that's much more important, not weapons and no weapons. I think that's a lot less significant than the UK and the US turning from sabotaging peace talks to uh, helping to promote, promote them. Right. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, I think that makes, um, you know, that makes a lot of sense that, that, you know, there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of worries that you could raise, uh, about the, um, you know, I mean, about the initial, uh, you know, U.S. uh, and U.K. military response, but, um, but at this point, you know, you might, you know, you might think enough of the damage yeah, is... It's not like the Ukrainian military or Azov or like, like infantry. It's not like they're like the YPG or like ISIS. We're not really giving Ukraine anything that they don't have. And so it's just kind of a Western system, which is a bit different from their systems. Like the Himars are kind of impressive. They're kind of much longer range than other, um, other multi launch rocket systems that the Ukrainians have, but the Ukrainians have ballistic missiles. They could try to hit Moscow. They've got weapons which have kind of that kind of range. So I don't think there could be any real kind of qualitative change to what the Ukrainian military has from the West. Um, so I think it's, it's kind of, I think it's almost a red herring. Right. Uh even yeah okay so they're not so there's no qualitatively different kinds of weapons. Uh, being I mean there are. There's like we we could give them nuclear weapons or whatever, but of anything that's plausibly going to happen. I sure, don't sure, so. sure. Um, I mean the I mean the, so it's it's not about the kinds of weapons. I mean it's it's just you know kind of about the sheer quantity of uh, of weapons that are uh, that are being sent to uh, to Ukraine. Um, but no, I, that, I was thinking. Going to really um, so the kind of the European uh, black market for weapons has yeah. been struggling lately with kind of competition from three D printed guns. Um, <laughs> yeah, but this is going to be God, a, that's a real that's such a of, that's such a dystopian sentence. But anyway, go on. Yeah, and then um, kind of the black, European black market arm uh, black market for arms is going to have a real bounce back with all these kind of Ukrainian stuff, and so uh, kind of the three D printed horizon is going to be pushed off for a while. Okay, I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's that's just such a horrible string of words. Okay, in every way. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right. Well, fair enough. Uh, so, so what do you, you know? So, so I do want to talk a little bit, you know, about the, um, you know, the point. So it's it's given. You know, I think the article in Sublation has a very. Um, you know, I mean, has a very attention-grabbing headline. It's like the Nazification of of, of Ukraine or whatever. But I mean, what's what's the uh, what's the primary argument you were trying to make there? Um, it was kind of just the uh, I think this is a relatively common Marxist point, but the kind of idea that various the various actors in Ukraine, none of them outside of these fascist groups want to see a fascist Ukraine, and there's kind of a lot of conspiracy theories among certain parts of the left that kind of the West is desperate to kind of ally and, and back and arm fascists and Nazis. But I don't think this is true. But right. rather because of kind of realities that, that go beyond kind of our personal feelings and anything, mm-hmm. all these actors, um, the, the West and Russia most prominently, 
are going to push Ukraine towards fascism. And I think maybe in the outside, I didn't, I should have actually spent more time on what was kind of one of the last points, which was the fact that Ukraine has been completely economically, militarily, uh, economically destroyed. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, the, the Russian, the Russian economy was meant to be destroyed by sanctions and it's going to shrink by like six, seven percent this year, which right. is like, you know, it's like, I think Britain's had that one year, you know? Um, so, 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 so why, I, I think we'll just pause on that for a second. I mean, why, why is that? Why do you think the sanctions have been so ineffective? Um, I think it's, it's kind of to talk, um, like in 2014, what, one thing I've been saying is like, it's almost like the two sides in 2014 decided we're going to stop here and we're going to come back in eight years where everything's going to be much worse for everyone. But one way in that, in one way that isn't true is that since 2014, Russia has been sanction-proofing itself. Um, and I think the basic assumption that Russia had and kind of the expectation, expectation that lots of people in the West had um, was that Russia would invade Ukraine. Ukraine would lose in a few days, but then Russia would be crippled by sanctions. So yeah. Russia, as opposed to having like a kind of since 2014, working out a way to kind of crush Ukraine militarily, they thought they had that down, basically. They've been right. focused on sanction-proofing themselves. For instance, by decoupling from kind of Western, um, like bank payment systems. Um, and so that, and that seems to have succeeded. Well, basically what I expected was that you, Russia would succeed militarily, but kind of fail economically. But the reverse has been true, where Russia has, to a large degree, protected itself economically, while it has at least partially failed militarily. Right. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so I, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, because it, it seemed to me, I mean, maybe this is superficial, but like practically everybody, I mean, if you look at what little debate there was about sanctions, you know, I mean, practically everybody uh, seems to have taken it for granted that they would be, uh, you know, that they would be pretty effective, right? That the, uh, that like, um, Maybe there was a question about whether you you wanted you know to uh, to cripple the Russian economy, but that you know that it would you know, but that it would be um, it would be crippled. So I mean, I I wonder why it is that this took so many people off guard. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's probably kind of um, uh, a Western expectation that kind of we still rule the world, um, and it's kind of been proved. Like, I think people had the concern that kind of, you know, we've we've conquered the world economically, but there's still bad actors like Russia, which have this incredibly powerful military, which can kind of massively overshoot kind of, we could destroy them economically, but we can destroy the military. But again, this it seems to be the reverse, where uh, Russia can't really manage the kind of warfare, or maybe, maybe Ukraine is just really good at fighting, uh, but... Russia maybe, maybe although, can't manage, manage the kind of warfare that the United States can, but the West is no longer able to destroy a country uh, economically as long as kind of China is still willing to keep trading with them. Right. Um, yeah, and I mean, it, it is, you know, I mean, I guess 
I'm trying to think. I mean, like the, I, I guess the, uh, the main, um, uh, you know, I mean, what has the Russian military actually done uh, in the, in the last bunch of years that would, would give lie to that. I mean, they, they, you know, I mean, they, they certainly bombed Syria a lot, but I mean, other than, you know, they, I mean, what's, what's interesting about Syria is kind of, um, it was a very NATO style intervention. Mm-hmm. This was meant to be kind of the modern way of doing warfare. And, it's, and Russia has been kind of hugely successful in Syria in terms of accomplishing their goals at a minimum of cost uh, in terms of uh, lives lost and this sort of thing. And so it's a very Western kind of intervention but that I don't think it really taught them that much for Ukraine. Uh, but again, I think Ukraine has a, it's a special thing because they went in there with a delusional military plan. And if they'd gone in there with, if they tried to do what they're doing now at the start, I think they could have done it relatively quickly. You know, right? Uh, if they if they hadn't made the the kind of delusional. Um effort to uh to, to actually you know take kiev and do regime change yeah, um, it worked it worked in one place it worked in kherson they took kherson in a week they took kherson city without the the city being blown up um but because of how spread their forces were you know like they put about there was almost kind of also one thing that i think people definitely don't realize is that mm-hmm. the russians are outnumbered about three or four to one in ukraine like versus the idea of kind of like a mass Russian horde is our traditional image of them. The Russians are like massively outnumbered in Ukraine. And especially at the first stage of the war, they put like 100,000 soldiers into the north of Ukraine and they kind of got stuck in the fucking mud. While in the south, they left about 40,000 soldiers as well as kind of the guys from the Dontesk and Luhansk People's Republic to kind of try and take on the whole south which is where most of the Ukrainian army is. Uh, and despite that, in Kherson, they still managed to succeed. So I think, yeah, if the Russians had put everyone in the south, or nearly everyone in the south, because obviously you want maybe some troops in the north to distract uh, Russian force, uh, Ukrainian forces. Uh, yeah, I think they could have they could have probably uh, put like a, you know, taken Kharkiv and Kherson and put an encirclement around most of the Ukrainian army in the Donbass. Right. Uh, so, so I do want to, I, I, mean, I guess the last thing before I let you go, I mean, I, I kind of cut you off earlier when you're starting to lay some of this out. Uh, but, uh, in your, in your piece in sublation, uh, you, you know, you kind of argue that, uh, okay, look when, you know, the sort of, um, you know the you know there are people in the western left who who actually have bought into you know like the the full line of of putinist um nonsense about the war uh i don't usually spend very much time criticizing them because i generally think they're just like marginal unpleasant weirdos but they don't really represent much uh and so maybe those people really do think that um you know like putin's goal you know was uh you know was you know, was was anti-fascism, and, and more to the point of your article that uh, that the United States, for some reason, uh, wants uh, you know wants Ukraine to be uh, to be to be fascist, and you don't yeah. think that, and you don't think that, right? But you do, um, uh, you know, you you kind of you kind of say in the article that this is an outcome that nobody wants, but you know, but the 
situation on the ground has has created more of a danger of it. Yeah. So if you, I mean, I, I, I mean, I was just, I was just reading your Hitchens thing, and you know, I, I assume you're getting to this, but I, I agree with you. The idea that you know, there's a lot less kind of Putinists than there are kind of people who decided that this is like a good American war, you know. Um, yeah, because obviously, you know, it's, Putin isn't fighting an anti-fascist war, but neither are the Ukrainians. Right, and, and I mean, it is this kind of weird thing. I think uh, that so many Westerners who are, uh, you know, want to to really promote whatever their view is of the conflict, um, you know, need to to reframe it as, as some version of World War Two. Right, everything has to be World War Two for us to. Uh, I mean, it it was kind of incredibly funny and pathetic at the start of the war when American kind of leftists or whatever from both sides tried to frame the Ukrainian and Russian army as if they were fighting their culture war. (laughs) So you had people like these, these like YouTube destiny, whatever he's called the other one. Um, Vosh. Oh, Vosh. Yeah. Like portraying the Ukrainian army as if they're kind of like, as if they're kind of like non-binary, yeah, uh, right. like effeminate kind of guys being like, oh, I'm going to fire my rocket at the Ukrainian tank. When, and obviously, yeah, on the other side, people on the other side portraying them basically in the same way and portraying the Russian military um, as kind of like, you know, the big the big bearded, scary, muscled guys yeah. with the height of masculinity in the last um, kind of barrier between uh, the world and global homo. Right, um, right, but obviously right. the reality is that the Ukrainian and Russian armies, in terms of who the soldiers are, the people in them are almost identical. Right, the people right, killing right. them are like, speak the same language of kind of, well, they'll be on a dialect continuum, but almost all of them are going to understand each other. You know, they've grown up watching the same TV, the same movies. I mean, obviously if they're old enough, uh, they were born in the same country, and if they're old enough, like the senior leadership of both militaries were literally in the same army, you know, right. thirty years. Ago. So yeah, it's this kind of this pathetic thing, which Americans, I mean, obviously British will do it too, but especially Americans because they're kind of the centre of the, the global hegemon. Can you know it completely blinds you to anywhere outside of your own country, uh, and you just can't see things in any other terms. Yeah, right. They uh, that that either the uh, either the Russians are fighting a war against wokeness, or you know whatever the uh, the uh, other way around is. Yeah. Uh, so no, for sure. And like, and again, you you do see both. Um, you know, the I mean, there are people. I mean, there are both. Like again, you know, the few Putinists who and it and yes, I think left Putinism is just unfathomably be more marginal phenomenon than, than left NATOism. Right. You know, so, so I don't, I don't really, you know, I don't really worry about it that much. Right. I mean, there are no, um, you know, there, there are no, uh, there are no, you know, there are no left Putinists in Congress. Right. You know, there, there are no, uh, you know, none of them have, have significant platforms really, you know, et cetera. So, um, so I, I think that the, um, the Finnish left, left party, is uh yeah. you know, you've obviously seen this whole thing with them joining NATO, right? And and then Turkey blocking yeah. it. 
have you seen what the the Finland's left party's response has been? They just adopted uh, finally today a, a motion uh. by Congress because obviously Turkey's made this back, these demands for them to basically deport all these random Kurds they want. And instead, right. uh, the left alliance backed a motion at their conference to demand that the EU remove the PKK from the terrorist list. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, so there's been some good responses also, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, yeah, so, um, but in both cases, right, I mean, like the, the few left foodness that there are, like, really, really play off, play up the Azov uh, issue to... Um, to you know, to make the you know this this kind of pretty blatantly imperial uh, Russian action in in Ukraine into a, you know into like a replay of the Great Patriotic War, uh, and then uh, the the many people in the much larger group of left NATOists uh, want to um, you know say well okay Putin is a fascist and we've been obsessing about fascism for the last seven years because of you know our analysis of you know, Trump mostly. Uh, and, and so we can just kind of transfer it to that. And it's the Ukrainians, you know, who are, who are fighting a, uh, an anti-fascist war. And, and I think your argument is, uh, I mean, okay. it's, it's really incredible. The kind of people who think that Chapo Trap House are fascists, but as of aren't, you know, and that's a real demographic. <laughs> group. And I think that group is larger than left Buddhists, you know, no, no doubt about that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's very well said. Uh, but yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so, so I think, uh, you know, so I think your argument you're starting to unpack, I want to kind of, um, uh, sorry about that. I wanted to, uh, want to kind of end on is that, is that you say, you know, in the, at the end of the article, basically, look, nobody, you know, uh, other than the Azov types themselves, right? You know, uh, on even their, you know, they're fighting in the immediate sense and this national unity effort to, uh, to to cast out the Russians. But I mean, nobody other than that is is fighting, you know, for fascism. Uh, you know, no significant, you know, no significant party, um, you know, global player. You know, I mean, it's it's not that the left Putinists are right. You know, the U.S. wants fascism. It's not that, but like you're, you know, but you think that Ukrainian fascism is still a significant danger. So, I mean, do you want to just kind of end by like taking us through that argument a little bit? Like, what are the factors that you think you know you think would lead to uh, to to fascism becoming a bigger danger in Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, there's a direct one that kind of um, the Azov Battalion who was previously kind of a force which lots of Ukrainians wouldn't really be a fan of or would have very mixed feelings on, um, have become, you know, national heroes. Um, I, I mentioned in the article, which, I mean, it, it probably won't be a particularly comprehensible reference for most Americans, but Eurovision, which is a very big deal in Europe, um, the Azov Battalion was shouted out on stage uh, at Eurovision by the winners of Eurovision to rapturous applause. If you told me that, that would happen a, a year ago, or if you, I mean, you definitely tell people in the mid 2000s, kind of like a, a a neo-Nazi battalion would be rapturously cheered at Eurovision. You know, they'd assume the other the other side had won um, right. the Second World War. Um, but beyond, beyond that, kind of the other factor is, as I've mentioned, um, the far right kind of 
formations have been growing and more have been formed kind of Azov through their influence I mean at the start of the war Azov tried to form their own army basically this is also I think Azov thought the Ukrainian military were going to lose and so we're preparing like possibly with with NATO advice um like a a, a territorial def defense unit in every um, region of Ukraine and this then became integrated into the Ukrainian Territorial Defense Force, which is basically giving kind of any organized group uh, weapons. And this includes um, a very small number of um, like left wing anti fascist volunteers who formed um, a few units in Ukraine. And obviously, best of luck to them, but you know, they're outnumbered right. with the one. Um, and and so first, as I've got these territorial defense units, and then they've transitioned them into becoming um, battalions of the Ukrainian regular Ukrainian military, not kind of separate battalions. For instance, in Kharkov, Kharkov has become like a city which is more or less under control of Azov now, because not only do they have, they don't have these separated battalions who are across the country, rather they have of the brigade in um, Kharkov, that defense Kharkov, most of the battalions in that brigade are Azov units. And then there's all these other, like the Ukrainian volunteer, volunteer army, which is associated with right sector, has got all these new units, for, as again, forming territorial defense units and then integrating them into Ukrainian military. Um, so kind of there's a massive growth in the number of, of aligned Ukrainian fascist units. Mm -hmm. Almost kind of the most, and then the other thing is that the war is going to end, I'm very sure, in a stalemate. And so there won't be kind of, all these Azov units won't be destroyed. One was destroyed in Mariupol, right? But the, Ukraine, the, the Russians aren't going to catch them all, especially because Azov aren't going to just throw all their guys in to die. Mm -hmm. That's why you, Azov has been positioning its guys not in Donbass, in this, in this soon-to-be-encircled area, but rather... They're having them in Kharkov and in the southwest where the Ukrainians are kind of on counteroffensive because this is where the units are being less destroyed and where kind of you get the glory of going on the attack and taking land and sticking the Azov flag in it. You know, right, right sector is constantly posting videos of them with kind of destroyed Russian tanks and each one builds their, their mystique more and more. Um, so this war is going to end in a stalemate. Um, where kind of feelings, where kind of a country, you know, you've been half occupied by an enemy force, but they haven't fully defeated you. That's like a perfect position for reva revanchism, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think these, they will grow in popularity, these fascist units. And then also the Ukrainian economy has been utterly wiped out. Like, there's not really enough words to talk about it because our, our kind of vocabulary of talking about economic destruction of kind of like a Western country, a European country, is talking about kind of the 2008 financial crash uh, as if it's kind of like a, a vast, vastly destructive thing. And for instance, Greece was completely detonated by the, the financial crash. And over a few years, they lost about a third of their economy. Ukraine right. has already lost half of their economy in about three months. And it doesn't seem like this is going to get better. Rather, each day, everything gets worse. So you're going to have these 
this, this, this bloated military over a dying state, that bloated military is going to be filled with fascists and those fascists are going to be popular among large segments of the population. And yeah, like, I don't know what that looks to other people, but it looks like very clearly something to me. Yeah, uh, that is uh, that is incredibly disturbing. And, um, you know, and, and I think a good, um, you know, I, I think something that can be, be tacked on to, uh, uh, to the, the list of, uh, of, of reasons to, uh, to, you know, to want, um, you know, to want some sort of, uh, you know, negotiated settlement, you know, sooner rather than later. So, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, you mentioned in your Ukraine article that what the West could be doing much better is, is giving Ukraine humanitarian aid. And for instance, the European Union did just give them nine billion uh, euros. But that was just a kind of that's emergency funding for like right. the day to day functions, functioning of the Ukrainian economy. And for instance, basically, no one in Ukraine is paying bills anymore, uh, energy bills. And so their right. kind of energy provider, their state energy provider is going to go bankrupt soon enough, which, you know, if the West is willing to do something about it, the Ukrainian economy is tiny. If the West was committed to doing something and the West wasn't being crippled by their own sanctions, do you know what price... Um, petrol is gas is now in the uk i, I did the math on this so i could convert mm. it to american mm-hmm. um a gallon of gas in the uk is about 14 dollars yeah um so, and the you know the uk is meant to be kind of the the, the strongest kind of pusher of kind of the ukrainian side of this war but the country which is going to be most affected by the war, apart from Ukraine and Russia, is the UK. And we're going through like a, a relatively significant economic and financial crisis at the moment. Um, and next year, we're predicted to go back into zero growth, while inflation is going to be at a high level, which is like, like a real economic decline of, of up to 10%, right? Um, so you have this kind of limited West, but if they were willing to keep Ukraine up, that was kind of the most valuable thing they could do. But rather, you imagine in these limited circumstances, the West will help Ukraine by reforming its economy to privatize these energy bills. And then they'll get, you know, the spare fascists who aren't fighting in the front anymore to kick people's doors down to force them to pay energy bills. That seems much more likely to me than fucking the, the EU paying to keep up like a uh, Ukraine state energy monopoly, you know? Right. Uh, but yeah, as I mean, just to circle and underline, I think which should be the main takeaway that totally could do that. And this is something that, um, you know, because this is something that always drives me crazy that, you know, in I, I think Western discourse about something terrible happening somewhere else in the world, um, you know, there's there's always there's there are always these calls to, uh, you know, to do something. And, um, you know, and, and what, you know, what something always means is something military. And that's, you know, that's not, in fact, the only thing that, you know, that doing something can, can mean, right? I mean, like you could have, you know, I mean, you could, uh, you know, you, I mean, admitting refugees is something, you know, immediate humanitarian assistance yeah. is something, you know, helping to tide over the Ukrainian economy, you know, so, uh, so, so that there isn't like, 
Some of the most kind of bizarre early war propaganda was the idea that Ukraine is like a really rich place. Uh -huh. The Russian soldiers going there were like they saw streetlights for the first time or whatever, <laughs> which is just completely insanely nothing to do with reality. Uh, Ukraine is like the 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 second poorest country in Europe, compared only the only poorer place is Moldova. Um, to outline how poor Ukraine, well, was and now is even worse. Um, Economic migrants from Ukraine used to travel to the Kurdish region of Iraq, of that Hitchens love so much, uh, mm -hmm. for work. And no, I don't mean to get like high-paying jobs. I mean to do basic stuff. Ukrainian women went to the KRG uh, to work in, in as, as beauty therapists, uh, to work as mas massage parlors, to work as, as sex workers. So they were traveling to Iraq as economic migrants because there were better economic prospects in Iraq than there were in Ukraine. So really, yeah, if the West was committed to that, keeping things up in Ukraine as they were wouldn't really cost that much money. But I don't see it happening. Right. All right. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Stefan. Let's, uh, uh, let's definitely make this the, uh, the first of many conversations. And is there anything? Yeah, we, did, yeah, we didn't there... talk about Syria, so. Uh, yeah, we really did. There was like there was like ninety seconds of serious stuff. No, I mean, <laughs> when you were like, "Oh, we're going to do a half an hour thing about Ukraine yeah. and Syria," I'm like, "No fucking chance, mate." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Uh, so yeah, yeah, we did like ninety seconds of Syria. I definitely, I definitely want to return to that. Uh, yeah, because so it, it's back in the news and it's linked to the whole Ukraine thing because basically Erdogan is trying to use. Uh, trying to use the, the West's weakened position due to the Russia war to invade, to do a third military operation against the YPG, which I fought with. Right. Okay. Well, uh, let us 100% sure, for sure, have you back on to uh, to talk about that, maybe even next weekend. And uh, is there anything you want to, uh, is there anything you want to mention or plug before we go? Uh, no, not really. Okay. Well, fair enough. I will. I will. Uh, I'll plug for you and say uh, read, uh, read read uh, read Stefan at uh, at Sublation uh, Sublation Magazine. New uh, article coming relatively soon, which will be me pretending to talk about fan fiction to actually talk about how uh, kind of ephemeral commodities work in late capitalism. Nice. Um, all right. Well, uh, check that out, and I will talk to you very soon. Okay, bye. Bye.